Alrighty, back again. Today we're going to talk about Immanuel Kant's third critique, the critique of judgment or the critique of power of judgment, uh, depending on which translation you're using. Uh, there's a lot to say about that translation and what one might connote or denote versus the other, but I'm not going to get into that because no time. Uh, before jumping into the text itself, you can find this in podcast form if you're checking it out on YouTube. There'll be a link for that in the description. If you're on uh, some podcast somewhere, you can find this on YouTube where I sometimes put up videos if you're at all interested in that. Um, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy if you want to see mostly pictures of my cats. Um, if you want to contribute in any way, there's PayPal, uh, Patreon, and I have to thank everyone who's been co contributing to that because it's been making me uh, be able to do this on a weekly basis, which has been very cool. It's been giving me the means to keep to keep it up. Um, anything else? I don't want to waste your time with this. Um, yeah, no, I guess that's I guess that's it. Oh, if you're on a podcast plat platform, you know, leave five stars. That'd be cool. Uh, comments um, or on YouTube, you know, subscribe. All that stuff is is great. It helps me out a lot. Um, and yeah, now now I'll get into it. So this book is divided into two books. The first is called The Aesthetic Judgment, or dealing with the aesthetic judgment, whereas the second is dealing with teleological judgment. Now, he's performing a critique of both, but uh, there's some caveats to that, and we'll get to them when we, when we get to them. Now, I want to say that it's going to be very difficult, in my mind, to grasp what's going on here without reading the first critique, the critique of pure reason, and the second critique, at least, the critique of practical reason. Now, if you don't have time, I've covered them on this channel, and you can find them in my uh, Immanuel Kant playlist if you want. Um, that, Of course, that does nothing compared to actually reading it, but that might give you a little bit of a background, one that I think is necessary. Seeing as this is kind of the last book I'll probably do of Kant, um, it'll kind of complete what I think Kant, for the most part, is all about. So if you haven't listened to those other episodes, I'm going to give it like a 30-second synopsis right here. So in the Critique of Pure Reason, Kant says, hey, we can't know just by thinking about the so-called truths of the world, if there are truths of the world. We can't know about something like immortality. We can't know about the soul. We can't know about freedom. We can't know about God just by thinking. So all we do know with our cognitive faculties is that the world it presents itself to us in a way that is only accessible to us. That is, we are tethered, we are connected to the world through our senses. Now, by virtue of that, we don't actually get a sense of the world itself or of objects in the world or of other people. We only get a sense of their phenomena as opposed to the noumenon. The noumenon is the thing that exists beneath the phenomenon, beneath the appearance that appears to us. So one way we can understand this uh, is that, you know, some people like the taste of, I don't know, bell peppers, and other people do not. Now, does this say anything universal about bell peppers? No, absolutely not. Just that people's experiences of them in terms of our senses, in terms of our um, olfactory uh, engagement with the uh, with the bell pepper 
doesn't actually tell us anything about the bell pepper itself, but only our perception of it. Now, that's kind of what we get at in the first critique, and that he says, you know, if we move beyond the realm of experience to try and explain, like, God, freedom, you know, the soul, then we're just going to be led astray. We won't be able to prove anything because we are moving outside of the limits of our experience and, and, and thought capacity. So that's the first critique, the critique of pure reason. In the second critique, the critique of practical reason, and I want to emphasize I'm being very quick about this. <laughs> he's like, okay, if we only have experience, uh, or at least experience kind of underwrites the possibility of our thinking, is there a way that we can look to experience to prove the existence of God, to prove the existence of freedom, and to prove the existence of immortality? And he goes on to do that. And the way that he does that is by saying that the human being, the human, is both a phenomenal object and a noumenal one. So what does that mean? Well, when I look at another human, or I look at myself, let's say in the mirror, I only see a, a, a phenomenal thing because my eyes, if I'm looking, are taking myself in. If I have a, you know, if I have a, a, a hurt finger or something and I hold it with my other hand, I'm only experiencing that finger with my other hand touching it. I'm not experiencing the finger in itself. But we are also noumenal in that all objects have a noumenal side to them, the thing that we don't, um, that we don't see or experience. And it is that kind of existing in between, the liminality, which is just existing in between, of the human between the noumenal world and the phenomenal world, that allows the human to engage with things that are beyond uh, the phenomenal world, to transcend them. Now, I use that term in with a little asterisk by saying that Kant says we can't ever appropriate this transcendence. We can't ever just go into this transcendent realm, but we can suppose it's there. And the fact that we have this connection allows us to have some degree of freedom in the world. Okay, so with that freedom, he says that we can engage in moral duty or we can, uh, you know, with that freedom, correspond to the so-called moral noumenal order, uh, which those aren't his words, they're mine, so I don't know why I said so-called, but it gives us a connection to any possible morality. All right, and this morality must come from something, it must come from some godlike being, but we have to be careful to detach that godlike being from any kind of religious affiliation. It is just a kind of architect, a kind of author of the world, the author of things, of the kind of um, possibility of morality. So in this book now, the third critique, the critique of, pra uh, of judgment, sorry, he's going to demonstrate even further how this capacity of humans to not only just experience the world, to not only turn that experience into um, kind of knowledge, into cognition, into uh, um, understanding, or with the understanding, turn experience into um, some kind of cognitive faculty or some kind of cognitive understanding. There's a term, and it's uh, evading me, but whatever. 
He's going to say, not only do we have those two possibilities, but we also have the capacity to look upon the world and wonder if it is the way it is, because it should be the way that it, it is, if that makes any sense. And this is what he calls aesthetics, quite broadly. Aesthetics is that looking upon the world and wondering, is what I see, does it correspond to what I think the world is trying to be to itself? but to me as the person that experiences it. very That's very broad, and we're going to get into it starting now. Remember when I said that only be 30 seconds? That's funny, funny, funny. So let's start with the preface. And in the preface, he says that judgment or the power of judgment exists between our capacity for reason and understanding. And he says reason belongs to the realm of pure practical reason that is our ability to engage with the world and understanding relates to the cognitive faculties that make or turn sense data our the experiences that we have of the world through our senses to make sense of those to 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 cognize them so judgment exists between the two and so therefore serves as a bridge between one and the other so he asks and this question kind of sets the tone for the entire book. He asks whether or not this judgment is regulative or determinative. Now, determinative could also be explained as constitutive. Now, what that means, or when he when he poses that question, he's asking is if judgment prescribes things to the world or recognize things in the world as they are, or if it only recognizes things in the world in accordance with human perception. So, if it is regulative, judgment doesn't make any claim about a thing in the world itself. It only makes a claim about judgment's perception of it. Whereas, if it's determinative or constitutive, it is actually making a claim about a thing in the world itself. Okay, just an important thing to throw out there. And that propels us into the introduction. So in the beginning of the introduction, he kind of muses on what philosophy is. And it is for him in relation to his broad system, that is what he's proposing in the first, second, and third critiques. For him, philosophy is either theoretical or practical. So when when it's theoretical, what it's trying to do is make sense of the world via its you know, uh, the human's kind of cognitive faculties. And because these faculties are tied up with the phenomenal world, they are tied up with all the experiences we have because we can't really be expected to have any thoughts at all without having had experience in the world. Um, He says that about theoretical philosophy or theoretical propositions, and he contrasts that with practical ones. Now, practical ones move beyond, as I said uh, just in the beginning here, uh, that is in relation to the critique of practical reason, the second critique. Practical philosophy allows us a peek into the noumenal world in terms of the human's potential for freedom. And they are free because they they manage to escape from the law of cause and effect that permeate the natural, the natural phenomenal world that belongs to the understanding, that is our 
the kind of cognitive faculties that we garner from this world. So what is the law of cause and effect? It really is quite simple. Kant says that there is no thing that happens in this world, no event, there's nothing that comes out of this world that was not produced by a cause, which makes sense. We can't think of anything in this world that just falls from the sky as though it just came from nowhere, right? It just it just poofed into existence. Everything comes from something else. Now, the only way to get out of that is if we get out of the phenomenal world into, and this might seem totally counterintuitive because he calls it practical reason, where you'd think, well, practical reason seems to apply to practice, would have to apply to the material world. Whereas he's saying, no, no, no. When we engage with practice, that is pure practical reason for him, what we are doing is engaging with the human faculty to make choices. And these choices demonstrate some degree of freedom, which must demonstrate some kind of escape from the law of cause and effect. So both the domain of cause and effect of the phenomenal world and freedom of the noumenal world both correspond to laws. They both have laws. So in the phenomenal world, the law is cause and effect. In the world, in the noumenal world, the, where, where there is freedom or from where freedom emanates, that freedom is uh, kind of bound by the law of morality, where that freedom is directed not out of just any one's desire, but instead by the categorical imperative, as he calls it in the second critique. And that is the very possibility for um, doing something that can be taken as a universal maxim, that can be taken as a categorical imperative. That is, no one can deny it at any point, which for more on that, check out the episode I did on the groundwork of the metaphysic of morals or the critique of practical reason. So we can't just understand what he calls the super sensible world. That is the world that exists beyond the sensible world. That is the noumenal world. He says we can't just understand it. So he wonders how we can bridge the two. How can we bridge the phenomenal and the noumenal world? And he says that that demands another term. That is a term between understanding and reason, as I've already said. And he calls that judgment. Now what judgment does, um, it essentially determines the feelings of pleasure or displeasure experienced by the human, experienced by a human, from things in the uh, in the sensible world, in the phenomenal world. It experiences that, and that experience doesn't belong to either desire or reason or the understanding or cognition. So it is completely subjective. It is a subjective a priori principle. Now on 31, page 31 in my version, he puts it this way. Judgment by the a priori principle of its judging of nature according to its possible particular laws provides this super sensible substrate, that is the noumenal world, with, within us, well as without us, with determinability through the intellectual faculty. But reason gives determination to the same a priori by its practical law. Thus, judgment makes possible the transition from the realm of the concept of nature to that of the concept of freedom. So whereas uh, theoretical reason, that is, um, you know, pertaining to the understanding, uh, he proves through synthetic a priori reasoning, 
uh, and practical reason or pure practical reason, he proves through, I guess, um, um, a posteriori uh, theoretical, pure pure a posteriori reason. He it is here that he's going to try and explain subjective a priori principles. That is things that are universal but are subjective, and it is in that the universal and the subjective coming together here in judgment that he claims to be bridging the phenomenal and the noumenal world. World zuh. So he taxonomizes these, or he kind of categorizes them as follows. So there are going to be, imagine in your head, three categories. One belonging to understanding, one belonging to uh, judgment, and one belonging to reason. Let's start with understanding. Understanding corresponds to the realms of nature, knowledge, and conforming to law. That is the law of cause and effect. Judgment corresponds to art, pleasure and displeasure, and purposiveness, which I'll explain in a bit. And then finally, reason corresponds to freedom, desire, and the final end. So that, you know, I'm throwing out these terms like saying reason and desire are the same thing. For Kant, they belong to the same camp. Uh, And again, for more on that, check out the other one. I swear I'll stop saying that in a minute. Uh, But reason and desire belong to the same camp understanding and knowledge and cognition all belong to the other camp and then in terms of judgment art and um purposiveness and pleasure and displeasure all belong to that camp so if a judgment of something uh, is guided by what he calls a concept or a rule or a law then he says that that judgment is determining so for example Let's say I were to see a, a movie and I had a checklist, like a criteria, as to what constituted a good movie. I could look at this criteria list and see if the movie checked off the things that have been agreed upon universally to see if that was a good movie. I could then say whether or not it was. Let's say it wasn't. Then I am making a determining judgment of the thing. Whereas if I don't have a kind of concept or law or rule or principle to apply to the thing that I'm experiencing and I'm going purely on how, you know, I um, respond to it or how it affects me in terms of uh, whether it produces pleasure or displeasure, then I'm dealing with a reflective judgment. So that's an important distinction between determining and reflective. So because the reflective is subjective, which is what he's really, his kind of real concern is here, the universal must be found in itself. And that universal, spoiler alert, is the very capacity of the thing to elicit a feeling in a subject. Now, without that capacity, without its ability to do that, then we couldn't have a judgment of it. So there must be something in the object that is universal in all objects that can do something to humans in our in its ability to move us emotionally to to elicit feelings in us that couldn't come from seemingly anywhere else or that could have but for some reason only came from that one thing Uh, and there are you know myriad examples where people walk into you know art galleries and just start weeping right because of the just the 
so-called beauty of the thing that they're witnessing, or they walk into the Sistine Chapel uh, and are just awestruck by the beauty of it. And it does something to them that they can't explain that, you know, it, it for some reason transcends, you know, all of our cognitive faculties, our um, kind of moral dispositions, and just turns us into a total mess, like we have no control over it. And that is what he's really focusing on here, how it is possible that things can do that to us, unless, of course, there was something a priori uh, within humans and these objects that allow that sort of connection. So in the case of a determining judgment, that is a judgment that checks to see if uh, a, an art object or an object in the world is you know, proper because it corresponds to various laws, what that determining judgment is doing is looking to see if that object is operating in accordance with its concept, with the way that it should be. And that is what is called its purposiveness, what it is, whether or not it is able to accommodate what it is meant to be as it should be, according to the concept. Now, if we are dealing with the other kind of judgment that recognizes things without this kind of, uh, you know, um, concept to guide them, to make sense of them, then their purposiveness is unto us it is to us as the capacity in in our capacity to experience them that gives them their purposiveness and because of that it is a subjective purposiveness because even though there are these objects that seem to do something to humans not everyone that walks into the Sistine Chapel has an experience not everyone that witnesses you know great work of art breaks down and 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 weeps And that tells us that, you know, it is completely subjective. But what isn't subjective is that we can have experiences of things that can move us in ways that we can't understand. So while one person might get nothing from the Sistine Chapel, they might have a very strong, you know, reaction looking at a tree or a flower in the world, and they might not have any understanding of it. They might look upon, uh, you know, a work of... um, fashion and it might you know break them down in ways that they they can't understand so because the purposiveness under a reflective judgment doesn't give primacy to a kind of uh, concept that exists outside of humans we are now dealing with a transcendental argument we are arguing that the thing exists in relation to the human cognition of it and so we can find a a kind of truth of the thing, not in itself, but in its connection to us that has a connection to the thing. So in his words, he says that uh, we're dealing with a transcendental proposition, which is one through which we represent a priori, the universal condition under which alone things can become objects of our cognition generally. So we are learning something about our faculties, our capacity to recognize, to acknowledge, to experience things. And this is because, despite the fact that in nature, as he says, there seems to be an endless multiplicity of empirical laws, we can still somehow provide some sense of what is proper in terms of purposiveness, that is an object being able to produce this effect within us when we're dealing with reflective judgment. Because there is still 
Uh, nevertheless, and this is in his words, there is a unity in the synthesis of its manifold in an intrinsically possible experience. So the manifold means the kind of um, th- how the thing appears as um, as an image or a phenomenon for human experience. So let me just repeat that. There is a unity of a law in the synthesis of its manifold in an intrinsically possible experience. So we see in all objects, you know, a kind of general concordance, not only of things with other things, there seems to be a harmony in nature generally, uh, not just in its operations, but in its existing altogether. There are no contradictions, as far as we know. There might be. We'll explain that. We'll get into that in the second book. But for now, we only experience the things, and it is in that universal possibility of experience, although it's subjective, that we can have uh, a relationship to things. So this is a universal law that we've acquired, we've accrued, by looking at the subjective instances, the kind of contingent, disparate um, experiences that different people have in relation to different things. The universal guiding thread is what is what is that they all have an experience of it, or what in Hegel he calls the um, negating the negation by saying that it is not what thing that things are different for different people. It is not what makes us different that sets us apart. Uh, in fact, the fact that we all experience it differently is the guiding thread that we must follow, and we must find what it is in that what is in that guiding thread that is the very capacity for us to experience it all that is important. Uh, so, in in my mind, this book and what we see in the phenomenology of spirit is where Kant and Hegel really um, overlap, in, and and they they depart in some very substantial ways as well. But that's just as an aside. And in all this kind of experience of the world, we can't ever claim to give it laws through our experiences, right? Because in our experiences, we can't ever come up with like um, universals because everything is different for everyone. So we can never claim to discover the order of nature through our experiencing them. But in judgment, we have the faculty to be able to recognize whether a thing is proper it's like a thing is is not the way it should be we have some capacity to recognize that uh and if anyone's ever watched like a um a, let's say a cooking show with judges the judges eat something and there are often moments in which they you know they eat the thing and the way that they describe it is so ridiculous at times like oh it's uh it's florally with some slight hints of of winter or something and it makes absolutely no sense. Yet it somehow evokes to the watcher, the viewer, because we get, we don't taste the thing, exactly that there is a proper way to judge this object by the experience of it alone that we can't give any kind of cognitive understanding to. You know, we aren't, they, you know, for most of these shows, they don't have like a checklist of things that they're saying like, oh, this is right, this is right, unless you watch like Quebec um you know, cooking shows in which, you know, they take it quite seriously. But it's an aside as well. There seems to be that capacity to recognize whether or not something is right, even though we can't make sense of it. So this is the aesthetic 
character. That is the relationship between a thing in the world and a, a perceiving subject. That is the phenomenal phenomenological relationship between the two. And in the way that that object can elicit pleasure or displeasure in the subject. So for him, pleasure can express nothing but the conformity of the object to the cognitive faculties brought into play in reflective judgment. So that is the subjective judgment. So reflective judgment is the faculty that compares the experience of the thing with all that it knows about the world, all that it knows through its experiences, all that it knows about, you know, anything to be able to make sense of whether or not the thing it's experiencing is proper, is the way it should be. Again, without prescribing that that is the only way it can be or that it is a universal truth of the thing, but that whether or not there... Yeah. So in the case that there is an object that is able to elicit pleasure in everybody, then it is considered a beautiful object. So this is what Kant means by the beautiful. And it is only with the judgment of taste that we are able to determine something as beautiful. And this only happens empirically. It only happens with our individual experiences of the world. Not rationally, but empirically. So we can only say that something is beautiful if it can subjectively be, uh, I guess, corroborated by others. Others who have, and this is the slippery, one of the slippery parts of the book, if others have a propensity for taste. And it's like, well, Kant, meh, it sounds like you're policing here. Like, who is allowed to call, to claim they have taste? which, you know, is difficult to say because uh, he doesn't really define it, but it is the capacity to recognize the beautiful. And, you know, when we're dealing with the beautiful object, we are dealing with something in the phenomenal world. And it is when we deal with something that moves us towards freedom, that is the domain of, the, that ushers from the domain of the uh, noumenal world, then we are dealing with a sublime object. So a beautiful object relates to the phenomenal world, broadly and a sublime object is something that allows us to kind of breach into the noumenal world but you know that just an introduction we're going to get into it in a lot more detail as we go on okay so it is from here that we move from the preface and the introduction into the first book the critique of aesthetic judgment or i guess well it's the first part um anyways and we're going to deal here under the uh under aesthetic judgment with the beautiful and the sublime. We are going to begin, though, with the analytic of the beautiful. So the beautiful can be broken, or dealing with aesthetic judgment, I should say. Here, we are only concerned with what he calls the beautiful, the agreeable, and the good. So we've already kind of talked about the beautiful. It is the kind of concordance between um, perceiving subjects with the faculty of judgment of taste, to recognize something as universally pleasing. Now, when we deal with something that is agreeable, we are still dealing with something subjective, but that is not universally pleasing. So, for example, I like pizza, and someone else might not. So, pizza is agreeable to me, and it is not agreeable to somebody else. And then the good is that which we agree upon almost in advance by attaching certain worth to certain 
things. And this, you know, belongs to the realm of culture or, you know, society or anything like that, where we set certain um, kind of objective laws that we must subjectively accord to them. So when we're dealing with aesthetic judgment, we're dealing with subjective judgment. So the first half of this, the book, that is the first half of the critique of judgment in its entirety, dealing with aesthetics, is dealing with subjectivity, which might seem strange given what Kant is all about, that is looking for these kinds of possibilities of reconciling God with, you know, human reason, you know, the faculties of of experience that are universal, yada, 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 synthetic a priori reasoning, right, looking for... Uh, universals in this in you know in the world that doesn't seem to have any as far as as far as we know he's only concerned here with the subjective so that might seem to fall short especially as we will see what he does in the second book that is the critique of teleological judgment is he kind of explains the truth of everything (laughs) at least in his mind uh kind of um so yeah in a sense the we're only dealing with subjective things here. That's all I had to say. So between the agreeable, the beautiful, and the good, he's obviously concerned with the beautiful because the the agreeable is just subjective, non-universal. The good is universal uh, and and not subjective because it's you know just universally accepted almost by you know power can determine it more or less. And then the beautiful though is the thing that we don't seem to organize in advance and it's the thing that is at the same time universal in its subjective uh, experience which is it seems like total brain melter but anyways so we're going to focus then on the beautiful now he divides it or he looks at it in four different ways he's going to look at it in terms of its quantity its quality its modality and its relations relation. So what do these mean? Quantity, quality, modality, and relation, not necessarily in that order. When he's talking about quality, what he's arguing for is that um, the beautiful is independent of all interest. So no one can uh, define what the beautiful is per se, or set out in advance what it must be. When he's talking about the quantity He's suggesting, he's arguing that it must be universal. And when he's talking about modality, he's talking about the way it appears, and that is its subjective nature uh, and its purposiveness. That is, it's uh, it's operating onto us as the um, people are that are capable of experiencing it, which must have been its purpose, its purposiveness, not purpose, purposiveness. And then finally, when we're dealing with... Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was relation. That is the relation between the object and us. Now, finally, modality is uh, the necessity of the thing itself. It's it's necessity as, as form. So to drive you totally nuts, uh, the four again are quality, quantity, relation, and modality. So quality being the independence of interest, quantity being its universality, Modality being uh, its necessity, and then relation being its subjective and purposiveness nature.
So I don't need to go into each one of these specifically because they, he pretty much just says the exact same thing. But it's important to keep in mind that he gives these kind of four arguments or the four kind of qualities of the uh, beautiful object in, in the different ways that I set them out here. But he gives various insights on, the, on his way through that I'll kind of briefly present or spark notes for you. So for a beautiful object, especially when we think about its relation, its relationality, as, you know, I already just mentioned it, we must understand its purposiveness as being a purposiveness toward, as I've already said, to us. Now, this is distinct from purpose because a purpose implies that it must correspond to a concept. It must be fulfilling its properly accepted use. So it, this is what he calls a purposiveness without purpose. That is a purposiveness. It's um, acting not in accordance with the concept per se uh, in in terms of a reflective judgment, but it is working only as itself, as a universal, that we as humans somehow have a universal subjective capacity to recognize. And that is its purposiveness without it having a universally accepted purpose. So this is why he says that when we engage with something as beautiful, we aren't engaging with it in terms of its content, because that would be all too subjective and would just lend itself to the agreeable. Instead, we are only concerned with it as a form. So by looking at the beautiful object's form or recognizing that its propensity to be beautiful is dependent upon its form that doesn't necessarily make sense to us, what we are doing is um, we are abstracting it from its ends as a purpose, right? So we are looking away from the thing as it is to itself and instead now considering it forming a totalizing whole between it and us as experiencing it in its form. So we as form, the you know, the human experiencing it, having the capacity for understanding reason and, and judgment, that is, that are universal for Kant faculties, that are form, that are separate from, you know, the individual instantiations of our reasoning, of our um, cognizing and of our judging, we still have these universal faculties. These three universal faculties in their abstract form are engaging with an object, not in terms of what it is to our senses immediately, but in its being a, a form that is beautiful and that corresponds to our other faculties forming that whole. Now, if you don't buy this, I don't blame you. It's It seems like a cop-out. So Kant is trying to give justification of a kind of idea of the beautiful by saying that, you know, we can't ever understand it, but it's out there. We know it's there. It seems like a bit of a cop-out, but anyways, nevertheless, this is his argument. So there isn't, like, when we're thinking about beauty, there isn't an ideal of beauty. And he goes on this really weird tangent explaining what he calls the ideal of beauty in relation to the normal idea. So he gives an example, and he's like, well, if we were dealing with people's faces... Um, let's say we were dealing with people's faces in, at the time, you know, continental Europe. He said, you could probably mathematically take the average of all the people's faces, 
different dimensions. So, you know, distance between their eyes, you know, from, and this is whoever has, you know, any knowledge in, you know, colonial studies, immediately alarm bells are going off because of this, like participating in craniometry, like measuring brain size or like uh, just setting the tone for eugenics in trying to properly select, you know, the beautiful people, which are invariably uh, in the colonial in colonial times and obviously it continues on to this day white people so keeping that in mind of course kant essentially makes that argument he's like okay if there was an ideal of beauty we could probably measure it out by taking all the dimensions of people's faces and averaging out what you know average you know eye you know eye width and height and and distance between the eyes and nose length and like ridge uh you you know uh, curvature and, and all of these things if we averaged all that, we could probably come up with the kind of archetypal beautiful face. But he's like, no one has that face. And that would we can only arrive at that by coming using what he calls a kind of psychological explanation that would be totally empirical. And it would give us a kind of truth, it, it, like a synthetic truth of what um, the beautiful is that is related only to its fo- its content. Sorry. And he says that someone, he says this outright, he's like, black people would have a different conception than people who were maybe in, in China. I believe those are the two like counterexamples he gives. And so he's like, this doesn't really get us anywhere as because we are dealing here only with the content. We are trying to actually come up with an ideal of beauty with this normal idea, which isn't helpful because that's moving us away from considering beauty as a form that is considering it only as the fact that people have the capacity to recognize something beautiful, even if they can't give a name to it or can't really understand it like cognitively. And in fact, he he goes so far as to kind of chastise any such approach by saying that, well, that gives us a very restricted idea about what the beautiful can be. Whereas in nature, where there's so much beauty, you know, all people seem to have the capacity to look upon nature with with awe, um, even if it's like a fear, you know, if, if you're someone that happened to grow up in um, an urban setting, being dropped into the wilderness is a very scary thing. But we are scared by its, almost by its magnitude, the magnitude of it, which is is a kind of opening up from the beautiful to the sublime, which is still uh, the capacity to recognize something in it that is, you know, us as a, as a human having that faculty to say, oh, this is this is beyond me. This is like th- there's something not right about this in accordance with my history, and that was only made possible by our capacity, our judgment as a kind of human capacity and that propels us here into considering the sublime those moments that we move from the phenomenal world where we can engage with the beautiful into the noumenal world the you know the moments in which our experiencing the world kind of pops us out of it so he says that the sublime is the name given to what is absolutely great and he he almost just means great in terms of magnitude like a mountain or a hurricane or, you know, the pyramids, things that don't, we don't 
we can't like totally cognize or illustrate in our minds like they they just seem to transcend human capacity but again because we are still dealing with aesthetic judgment here um it is subjective we have these subjective feelings of the sublime but we all seem to have that universal subjective feeling of it like the beautiful and whereas the beautiful was our recognizing the form of a thing that is the very capacity of it to be beautiful to us with um, the sublime we are viewing it not as a form but as a limitlessness yet with a super added thought of its totality so like the beautiful where we were dealing with quality quantity uh, relation and modality we're going to be considering the same things here with the sublime so the quantity or quality quantity relation and modality now he calls he splits these into two and he says that quality and quantity belong to one camp and relation and modality belong to another the first is the mathematical sublime which is the dealing with quantity and quality this is dealing with an object in terms of uh, its kind of empirical uh, vastness so quantity it's like pure size and quality in terms of its size as well but we're going to get into that a little bit more in more detail versus the dynamical sublime pertaining to relation and modality that is overwhelmed by a thing's might not just its size but its might its its strength its its puissance as puissance its potential power more or less in french anyways so whereas the beautiful was measured by its propensity to elicit pleasure, the sublime is measured in its propensity to elicit respect, which is a humbling thing to say, of course. So for him, it is in nature's chaos, provided it gives signs of magnitude and power, that is mathematical and dynamical sublimity, uh, that nature chiefly excites the ideas of the sublime. So it thus provides, in his words, no indication of anything purposive in nature itself, but only in the possibility, possible employment of our intuitions of it in inducing a feeling of our own selves of a purposiveness quite independent of nature. So in the beautiful, there was like a connection between the thing experienced and it's it's accordance to our like accepting it or or recognizing that the thing is is beautiful whereas with the sublime we are confronted with something we cannot understand and as he's going to come to argue it's in that fact that we don't understand it because of its uh, vastness because of its might that it actually marks a disconnection between it and our imaginations forcing our imaginations to expand to accommodate it so this is where growth comes in we grow when we confront the sublime now i want to stress that it's it although there is a separation occurring we still only experience as much as we can of a of a of a phenomenon in our own minds so and this is I think one of the best parts in this book Kant says that it reveals to us when we are confronted with something that is sublime the extent of our imaginative capacity because we 
can only recognize that which our minds can understand. Like we can only see what our minds allow us to see. So we aren't just recognizing the vastness of a thing in the world. We are recognizing the vastness of our own minds. So when we look upon the cosmos, we look upon constellations in the sky, we look upon the vastness of the pyramids, while we might not have a total picture of it, the thing that is moving us is still bound to our imaginations in that what we see is absolutely tied to what our cognitive faculties are allowed to make sense of. But in the sublime moment, there is a force to move even beyond it, to move beyond that capacity into something new so that we can, you know, accommodate it in more detail later later on, for example. So uh, someone who lives near the pyramids might never have this experience of like total awe. They might have in their complete experiencing of the pyramids throughout the course of their whole lives, just it just be a natural part of their daily lives, something that they don't even look upon. But someone who's never seen them before can't actually grasp them in the moment. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah. So like if we're dealing with something like infinity, we can logically understand infinity. We could never aesthetically understand it. The The infinite is never something that we can comprehend uh, with our own minds because it is just something that is beyond us. Um, Descartes, in his first meditations on philosophy, which I've done on this channel if you're interested in, makes uh, a similar argument. He says, if we're given a triangle, we can see what kind of shape it is because it has three sides and it makes total sense to us now if we go from that to a square we can still make sense of the square because we can still see it has four sides now you keep going you go from that to a pentagon to a hexagon to whatever seven is to an octagon that has eight sides to a nine-sided thing to a dectagon maybe has ten sides at that point, probably, we, by looking at it, don't actually know how many sides it has. We have to actually go and count them. Now, imagine going up to, like, a 30-sided thing. We don't actually know what we're confronted with. We don't know what how many sides the thing is. So there comes a point, and it might be maybe between 10 and 12 sides. Who knows? It's subjective for, you know, who would be able to recognize it between 10 and 12 sides, maybe up to, who knows, up to 15, whatever. Um, There becomes a point in which all the rest just kind of blend together because it extends beyond our imaginative capacity. We can't recognize it in its specificity beyond a certain point. So it pushes us to kind of adapt to it, to understand it. Now, Descartes doesn't say that it pushes us. This is, this is me superimposing Kant onto Descartes, but when we are confronted with something that extends beyond our daily understanding of it, our kind of, you know, basic understanding of a thing, it forces us into something new to understand it more. Now, this, you know how I said that this elicits respect for the thing? Kant then says, because what we are seeing when we see the vastness of something is the vastness of our own imaginative capacities to understand it, what we are also doing then is recognizing the the supremacy of our cognitive faculties on the relational side 
over the greatest faculty of sensibility. So we have a respect then too for these kind of our capacity to recognize these things. So that pretty much encapsulates the mathematical sublime dealing with like vastness, just pure size almost. Now let's talk about the relational, the relation of the sublime. So the relational and the modality, as we'll get into, deal with the dynamical sublime, not just the mathematical. And what this means is not only looking at a thing in terms of its size, but looking at the thing in its capacity to be, in his words, have a superiority to hindrances, to be able to um, circumvent barriers, to be able to breach through uh, defenses or problems or, you know, roadblocks. But he adds an interesting caveat here. And he says that even though what we recognize to be dynamically sublime has a power that is greater than us, greater than ourselves, it, in order for it to be considered dynamically sublime, it cannot stoke fear in us. It can only be respect. Can't, we can't be scared of the thing because then, it, then it's something else entirely. Now, the distinction between fear and respect should be attended to a little bit here. Because while we don't have fear of the thing, because fear would mean that we evade it, you know, we just run away. Like if we confront a, a bear in the woods, we just probably run away from the bear. We, aren't, we don't confront it and try to, you know, defeat the bear to, to overcome the bear. We just run away from the bear. This doesn't mean that for Kant, the, a natu- the natural or nature, sorry, can't be fearful. So it is in its being fearful is something that, you know, tries to stoke fear in, you know, a perceiving subject in its, in its might, like um, a waterfall or a moving river, for example, um, where, you know, how many movies, you know, we see people fall prey to a river and the river just commands them. The river isn't huge. The river isn't doesn't appear to be all that commanding. Yet it does something to us that we, you know, need to really work at to overcome. But we aren't, you know, you don't see a river and, and are scared. But it is when we are fearful of something, like in the case of a, a river, which again, I'm just trying to, maybe I'm being a little bit... Um, I don't know, trying to mark out this difference between being fearful or something being fearful and, and fear itself. But in these, this experience or this recognition of something as, um, as containing a might that is greater than us, we then adapt to supersede that might. So if this fear is handled and the fearfulness is overcome, it gives us courage to be able to measure ourselves against the seeming omnipotence of nature. So then therefore, in his words, nature is here called sublime merely because it elevates the imagination to a presentation of those cases in which the mind can come to feel the sublimity of its own vocation enter over, even over nature. So even against those things that are considered uh, having a lot of might, we can overcome it, just like when we recognize uh, the the universe in its, um, you know, vastness. We are also recognizing the vastness of the human mind. So that puts us here into the second component of the dynamical sublime, dealing with modality. So whereas with the beautiful, we could say that it's universal. We can't really say that 
for the sublime um, for, I guess, this reason. Uh, the reason being that culture seems to play some part in determining what will be considered like might, right? So with culture, that is with human organization, we can then co- we can command rivers. We can desecrate forests with, you know, much to our our um, own demise. You know, we, we are destroying this planet at a rate that is extremely alarming. Um, and so culture then does play some part in how we are going to perceive things in terms of their sublime possibility. And then he kind of finishes talking about this sublime specifically by saying that whereas with the beautiful, to judge it meant to have the capacity for taste, judgment of taste. With the sublime, we must have the capacity of feeling. You know, we must be able to be moved by something in a way that is, um, you know, demands feeling. So between the two of them, that is the beautiful and the sublime, Kant says that they are both purposive in reference to the moral feeling because they're getting at that kind of universal side that is bridging into the noumenal world. So he continues this by saying that the beautiful prepares us to love something, even nature, apart from any interest. The sublime to esteem something highly, even in opposition to our sensuous interest. So the beautiful we recognize you know, separate from what the object or thing should be doing. And in um, in the sublime, we re- learn to respect something, even though it seems to go against everything we know empirically and rationally about our lives. Like we know um, how nature can, can move us or how uh, a mountain can move us, but it is also something we should probably rationally fear and not want to climb or to summit. Uh, because of the you know threats it poses to our physical body, but that's that's exactly the what he's getting at with judgment somehow exp- or this discourse of judgment explaining that there are components of our acting of our experiencing the world that do not simply lend themselves to our cognitive faculties or to our ex- um, kind of practical faculties are existing in the world in terms of reason and desire. So from here, and if you ever read this book, you'll be able to, to um, justify or to um, corroborate this. Kant gets really repetitive in that he goes on to prove the kind of subjective yet universal nature of the sublime. And so I don't want to just do that because it's gonna it's gonna be repetitive. And it's gonna be confusing. And in my mind, not totally necessary, at least not with what, you know, someone is going to be providing you in a couple hours on YouTube or wherever you found this. So I'm careful in picking out key points that I think correspond to what I've been saying so far and that give us more of a kind of narrative arc, not just a kind of repetitive uh, reaching because, and this is would be one of my criticisms of Kant, is that he doesn't want to commit to anything. <laughs> You know, he's he's a fence sitter and he's going to go around in circles and circles and circles until we get to the next book, the Critique of Teleological Judgment. He's going to go around in circles until, uh, you know, he, he's blue in the face and hasn't really said anything new. Now, it all, you know, gets, you know, picks back up when he 
looks back again at the beautiful and he wants to consider it in terms of art because you know we're talking about aesthetics how can we not talk about the production of art and because the sublime doesn't really correspond to art all that much because we aren't dealing with something that is just beyond our comprehension like a like a typhoon or hurricane or or the like the solar system the universe we are going to deal specifically with um the beautiful in terms of art for now at least and and also we're going to talk about nature a bit i'm sorry that this is i'm getting a little bit off track i'm just trying to think about the best way to present this even though i have my script that i'm starting not to like at this moment but anyways so when we say that something is an artwork what we are saying is that there was um essentially a desire behind it being a work of art you know even if it's just someone putting a banana peel on a wall and calling it art it it is art in that it was considered to be or um, given the status of art by the maker so he says that in the case of nature let's say we look upon the up, up, upon a beehive and we say that oh that what it it looks so beautiful, like in the case of the beehive, like it looks like a work of art. Kant says that that isn't actually a work of art because it wasn't made with the intent of being art. So art in the, and he, he, you know, proposes another distinction between like absolute art, saying that that is like something absolutely made to be art, like um, like a painting or sculpture or something, where we could call art, you know, inscription, like tattooing might be something, for example, that, you know, humans have been doing for thousands and thousands of years that wouldn't be at every time considered to be made for the sake of art. Yet it is something that we can understand as art because it is made by humans, not instinctively, but like culturally as a means of um, kind of appealing to the senses of aesthetic judgment. But if I can just use the Kantian term and art is therefore distinct from like craft because crafting corresponds to like very fundamental rules, right? You learn how to craft something and, you know, you will craft the shoe over and over and over again. And it is only when you get imaginative that you can, can call it art. So art is then reserved for geniuses. And I don't know how this word, uh, what this word is in the original uh, German, but genius seems to have like, a certain connotation in English that I'm not sure is what Kant had intended because, you know, genius often means for us someone who is well-versed in like strict, you know, theory, you know, they've learned all the rules. Whereas the, when dealing with a beautiful art object, it is something that actually supersedes it, it transcends the rules into the imagination, into creativity. And we don't often call creative people geniuses, at least not in my mind. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. So despite this, he says that art still has rules to some extent. Like there's, you know, if we, um, if I were to design a room, let's say for a big celebrity design their living room they would probably walk in and want to vomit all over the floor because of how bad of a job i did now they wouldn't know why perhaps they would just know it was wrong but it is in that very fact that art seems to abide by 
rules, and these rules are changing all the time, absolutely, but there are still rules. Like that's why we have something called fashion. The Marxist explanation would be like different from that, but for Kant, maybe this is why we have fashion in that it demonstrates these the the fact that we have these rules, even if they are unseen, unwritten rules. So Kant goes so far as to say that Newton isn't a genius because Newton only follows rules. Uh, and he, he doubles down on Newton at a few different parts, especially in the critique of teleological judgment. But he's like, Newton, we, we were definitely going to arrive at Newton for Kant. Uh, but he says he can contrast Newton with a poet where you can't teach what the poet knows. The poet is someone who just is able to communicate with language in a way that can never be taught or replicated. You can, you know, recite their poems, but you can't create in the way that uh, a genius can. So when talking about art, he he says that uh, whereas with a beautiful object, you know, where taste was required to judge it, he says that genius is required to judge like fine art, you know, art that was made for the sake of being art, like Mona Lisa, sculptures, whatever, uh, made for the sake of being art. And it is genius, which is kind of like the rule of it, uh, because, you know, the genius is still operating by some fundamental rules, because without these rules, without them accommodating some underwritten kind of code, they wouldn't actually garner any recognition by anybody else. So there must be a kind of guiding guiding rules that they are accommodating to make it so that their art can even be recognized at all. So a work of fine art is not a beautiful object. It is a beautiful representation, which is a distinction that Kant makes. And this is like definitely one of the interesting tensions in, in Kant's scholarship, and that is reconciling the difference between the world of representations, the kind of phenomenal world, and these kind of um, second-order representations, you know, the representations within representations, because for Kant, everything's representation. Everything only arrives at us via appearances through our senses. But then within those representations, we have like representations in the form of art, uh, poetry, movies, music, everything that, you know, simulates that already simulated world, which is certainly interesting and difficult to reconcile at, at points. So anyways, when we have the re when we produce a work of art that is free because then it wouldn't be art it would be craft or something yet it's still bound by some kind of laws lest it wouldn't be recognizable by other people at all um, then we are dealing with the communicability of the imagination of imagination which is what he calls spirit spirit is that capacity to call upon your imagination in such a way as to make it readily accessible to other people, which is interesting because he also says that the person that produces fine art as, you know, the genius, the person that is purely creative, doesn't, like, attain their skills mechanically. Like, they don't learn. You can't produce fine art by just, you know, reproducing the world or the rules given to you, like, if you went to an academy to learn how to produce art. A kind of true work of art for Kant is something that can't it can't be taught, right? So it's almost to be a genius means to have this skill bestowed 
unto you by nature, which is dominated by laws and whose laws come at you or arrive with your being bestowed the status of nature. Yet with it also comes the kind of so-called propensity for freedom that humans kind of innately have. And there is that kind of the kind of blending of the two that is of natural laws and freedom. So then from here, we're going to get into the dialectic of aesthetic judgment. And then that'll conclude up this this episode. And then next time I'm going to take up where the uh, with the book on the critique of teleological judgment. So we have a problem presented in all of this, which Kant is going to reveal in his dialectic. So if you don't know, when Kant uses the dialectic up till this point, that is in the first and second critiques, and now this one, he is demonstrating that there is an antinomy. So there is a contradiction between two mutually true uh, antithetical arguments. Now, the difference here is that in the other critiques, I'm sorry if you can hear a banging, my landlord's doing renovations and it's driving me, it's been months and it's the worst thing ever. But anyways, um, whereas with pure reason and pure practical reason or practical reason, he demonstrated that these, uh, these two approaches arrived at illusions because they tried to claim universal truths, like in the existence of God or immortality, the soul, anything like that. Whereas they tried to evince um, universal truths. We can't say that really about aesthetic judgment so far because we are only dealing with the subjective here, right? We've only been dealing with subjective principles. So how can we say that it's false? So instead, he's like, we have to consider the dialectic in terms of the uh, claim to universal taste, dealing with judgment claiming a capacity to recognize universally, and how this is connected to, supposedly connected to a priori principles. So here is the thesis and the antithesis of taste, where for him, the thesis is that there is no universal principle because it is subjective, lest it conform to concepts, truth, uh, and the antithesis is that there is a universal principle because without it, we wouldn't be able to talk about uh, taste at all. So let me put that in other words. For him, he puts forward the thesis that um, there is no universal concept that determines our judgment of something, our taste of a thing, because then we could say that, oh, well, your taste to someone else, like, oh, your taste is wrong, or there's like a true taste, and we can essentially hone everyone's um, propensity for judgment of taste, we can hone that in in order to arrive at the truth of taste. So he says that's one idea. The other idea is that there is a universal principle and that there must be because if there wasn't, there wouldn't be any way for us to actually talk about taste at all. There must be some guiding universal thread that makes it possible. So he says that these two propositions are equally true and in fact, if we just follow them on into their, you know, to their extremes, they neither one cancels the other out. So we have an antinomy. We have two equally possible theses that are held up um, somehow. So he's going to try and resolve that here. And he, he resolves it by demonstrating that the thesis, the idea that there is no universal principle, 
belongs to the super, the sensible world, the phenomenal world, whereas the antithesis, that there is a universal principle, is a truth pertaining to the supersensible world. So the thesis exists phenomenally. The antithesis exists uh, in the world of the noumenal. So, you know, this is a bit of a cop-out by saying that, oh, well, the universal truth is there, but that we just can't understand it because it belongs to the super sensible world. But I think that he's right in some respect, because we do have a capacity to recognize things as beautiful. And he takes from, he kind of borrows this from what he develops in the second critique, because he says that we can't say that any single action is right or wrong. But we do have the capacity to recognize something as being right because if we didn't then we wouldn't have any reason to do anything at all like we must do things because we think them to be right and the very capacity that we have to think something to be right gives us kind of purchase on a universal truth i will say of you know the human capacity for the recognition of what is right and the same can be applied to what is you know beautiful And so it is in this way that judgment connects the singular domain of the uh, super of the sensible with the universal domain of the super sensible. And with that, I will just stop this because that finishes up the aesthetic, uh, the critique of aesthetic judgment. And next time I'm going to pick up on the second half, beginning with the critique of teleological judgment, which should be a lot shorter than this. Um, So, yeah, sorry for the banging if you could actually hear it. Uh, it's been driving me insane. Um, but yeah, if you made it this far, you know, and you got something from it, consider liking, commenting, sharing. Who knows? Your family members might love this. They might not. Who knows? Uh, subscribing. That'd all be great. Uh, and I'll catch you next time. So take care.